Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Cove Church. Uh, my name's Brandon. If we have not had the privilege of meeting, uh, it's great to meet you, at least here on this uh, online kind of digital platform. If you're brand new to Cove Church, welcome. If you're back a second time, welcome back. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors. Our lead pastors, Pastor Paula and Pastor Aaron, are on a short 90-day sabbatical. In fact, we're already halfway through that, and it's just flown by. Uh, I've often said no one wants them back uh, more than I do, but we've uh, done our best to kind of weave into our practice praying for them. So we want to do that now. I want you to join me uh, as we pray for Pastor Aaron and Pastor Paula. Jesus, thank you for our pastors. They are indeed a gift from you to us. And as they engage in this rhythm of rest, would you do just that and more? Would you give them rest? Would you um, replenish them? Would you revive them? Would you restore them? Fill them with your spirit and uh, bring them back to us full of life in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So church, interestingly enough, uh, I was uh, all set to introduce you to a guest speaker, one who um, was not unfamiliar to you, but that person uh, got sick this week, non-COVID related. And so you are stuck with this old guy. Uh, we will continue our Galatians series next week with Galatians 5, and then we'll finish up in two weeks with Galatians 6. But today, what I want to do is I want to take us back to Jesus. Specifically, I want to take a look at the cross. Sometimes it's just good to ratchet back to Jesus. He never ran for political office. He was never married. He never had kids. He likely never traveled more than 120 miles or so from his hometown. He never wrote a book. He didn't have a Twitter or Instagram or Facebook account. He didn't have any videos that went viral. He ran with a ragtag bunch of outcasts that his parents likely would have never approved of and really poured himself, frankly, into three jokers named Peter, James, and John. And normally, Cove Church, when someone dies, especially someone in Jesus's historical time frame, their impact on the world stage begins to recede. But Jesus really inverted the trajectory of human history. Here's what I mean by that. His impact was greater 100 years after his death than when he was alive. His uh, impact was greater still 500 years after his death, after a thousand years, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. And now 2000 years after his death, he has more followers and more places than ever. At the time, Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus or Napoleon or Socrates or Muhammad, when they died, their reputations were monumental. But when Jesus died, it wasn't so. In fact, it was rather anticlimactic. His followers simply slipped back into their old way of life. John Ortberg uh, wrote this, if there were an award for most likely to posthumously succeed, Jesus would have never made the list. Jesus made history by starting in a humble place, in a humble way. He loved people. He accepted people. He gave the outcasts a voice and he set himself on a collision course with Rome where he would likely be crushed 
frankly, like a gnat, and he was indeed crushed. And yet his influence today has swept over our society and our culture, much like a deluge of rain. Uh, in fact, rain that uh, is much needed for our forest fires. Today, his influence has touched the fabric of every vein in our lives. Every vein that we're engaged in from art to science to music, politics, government, hospital, geography, city names, universities, calendars that we hang on our walls. In fact, when we look at our calendar, somehow this incredibly brief life has become the dividing line in all of human history. And Jesus wasn't even trying to impose a calendar on our culture. In the 1920s, the founder of the League of the Militant Godless, an atheist group, Yemelian Yaroslavsky, he said this, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. No one knows what Jesus looked like. We don't have any photos of him and really don't have any physical descriptions. And yet Jesus and his band of disciples became the most frequent subject of art in the world. If you look at movies, he's been portrayed in movies by Frank Russell and H.B. Warner, Jeffrey Hunter, Max von Sydow, Donald Sutherland, John Hurt, Willem Dafoe, Christian Bale, Jim Caviezel, and countless others. If you look at songs, the songs that have been sung about him are frankly too numerous to count, dating all the way back to maybe the first known song written by the Apostle Paul, a hymn, if you will, in the second chapter of the book of Philippians, all the way to a recent album under the mistletoe by Justin Bieber that I know you all ran out and purchased a few years ago. John Oldberg in his book, Jesus, the unpredictable impact of the inescapable Jesus wrote this. It is in Jesus name that the desperate people pray, grateful people worship and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings, to sick rooms, to funerals, it is in Jesus that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. Jesus never married, and yet his treatment of women led to the formation of a community that we call the church, that women have joined by the millions. Jesus' teaching about sexuality would actually lead to the disillusion of a sexual double standard that was actually encoded into Roman law. Jesus never wrote a book, and yet because of his command to love the Lord your God with all your mind... Out of the ashes of the dark ages, libraries and learning guilds developed and eventually Oxford and Cambridge, Harvard, Yale and virtually our entire Western system of education and scholarship and on and on and on we go, Cove Church. All from a low-class carpenter born to a teenage mom in a barn. He's the one name in human history that simply, Cove Church, will simply not go away. In fact, his fame continues to grow. And how can this be? How can his fame continue to grow when the most famous people in human history, the trajectory of their fame, grows smaller over time? Jesus, his fame continues to grow. And why is the answer to this question so important. So for the next few minutes, I want to try to answer the first question. But the answer to the second question is simply this. If you're a Christ follower, this is your legacy. This is what you're a part of, the most famous name in human history. And if you're not a Christ follower, maybe you're trying to figure Jesus out. I trust this teaching will be formational and helpful in your life. 
The reason, the reason the humble Jesus was able to dismantle an entire power structure long after his death is because of several seminal principles that he lived out. Jesus was on the wrong side of the law when he was born. And these teachings that he taught and lived by put him on the wrong side of the law at the end of his life. And yet they changed the structure of massive legal codes and gave flight to new democracies. The principles that I want to look at with us just for the next few minutes flew in the face of, of, of the Roman culture that Jesus ministered in. And eventually it completely, hear me church, it completely leveled and revolutionized the class system of Jesus's day. The title of my message is The Cruciform Life. And that word cruciform simply means this, to be shaped into the image of the cross. I wanna read from John chapter 13, verses one through nine. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew something, the Bible says. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He now showed the disciples the full extent of his love. It was time for supper and the devil had already enticed Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Verse three says Jesus knew something else. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and he knew something else that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. This isn't just removing one garment for another. It was incredibly symbolic. We'll get into that here in just a second and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around him. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, why are you washing my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now why I'm doing it. Someday you will. No, Peter protested, no, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, but if I don't wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter changed his tune pretty quick. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Church, I love um, studying leadership, especially church leadership. And I do believe that the church needs more leaders. I believe that Jesus trained up leaders and released them. And yet as I study leadership, there, there are a few things that have kind of rubbed me the wrong way, not the least of which is there's something conspicuously absent from the at least modern day leadership, the teaching of leadership and the writing about leadership. And it's this, it's the idea of true servanthood driven by humility and sacrifice. The class system, if we maybe look at modern day uh, class system, it's reinforced when we fly an airplane, isn't it? Joy and I, a few weeks ago, we flew on a pretty well-known airline and I noticed when they got on the intercom we were we were going to board the plane I noticed that there was a first class and a business class and a platinum reward status and a gold reward status and a silver reward status and then there were women and children and somewhere at the back of the line after all of these kind of upper class folks boarded the plane they put Brandenburg in the cargo hold with the luggage if we go back to Jesus' time, the Roman world, uh, kind of their caste system or their class system, status and honor, Cove Church, were everything. Cicero, the Roman politician, lawyer, consul, and constitutionalist, was quoted as saying this, rank must be preserved. 
Roman culture was roughly divided into two classes. You had the first class, which is about 2% of the population. And then what one Roman historian and senator called the rabble. So you had the first class and then frankly, you had the other 98%, the rabble, the, the upper crust, the 2% was uh, consisted of the 600 or so uh, senators who ran things under Caesar and below them were the equestrians who owned horses and can be, could be battle ready. And below them were the decurions who were wealthy citizens who held power. And these were the first class flyers, if you will, Cove Church. And within this class, there were status symbols that they all vied for and they were trying to elbow one another out of the way to the top. And winning was everything. Below them were the other 98%, the nobodies who enjoyed maybe some legal status and legal rights as Roman citizens. And then below them were freedmen who really didn't have legal rights, but at least they were free. And then below them were slaves. And even in their clothing, in this ancient culture, it spoke of class. If you were not a slave, you could wear something, for instance, called a freedman's cap. If you were free by the age of 14, you could wear a toga, which was, it was incredibly inconvenient. It was sweaty in the summer. It was drafty in the winter. It was difficult to keep up. In fact, the wealthy would employ slaves who were experts in, you know, yoga draping. The bottom line is it didn't look good. It was tough to manage, but by God, it served as a symbol of my status in society. Senators could wear purple which was a sign of royalty on their toga, but an equestrian could not, but what they could wear was an expensive toga and various style of gold rings. In fact, the order of the equestrians was often referred to as the order of the rings. And I began to think about James's words in, in, in the Bible, the book of James, not to give preference or favor someone wearing gold rings and fine clothing. Even in death, if you look at death in this Roman culture, a Roman citizen, they couldn't, be, they couldn't be crucified, but they could be lit on fire. They could be beheaded. And why is that? Because crucifixion was known as a slave's death. So when Paul preached, Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews in, in, the, in the Old Testament law. It says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so when, when Paul's trying to describe the, the Messiah, Jesus, and that he was crucified on a tree, just it was a stumbling block to any God-fearing Jew, and, and it was foolishness to a Gentile. You're trying to tell me that this is my savior and yet he died a slave's death? It didn't make any sense. Now, friends, I want you to, I want you to carry kind of this context of the, of the class system or the caste system, if you will, into our context. In John chapter 13, Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples. It was an important process in Jesus's day. It was a step of hygiene. It was a sign of hospitality, but it was reserved for slaves. And so when Jesus took off his outer garment and put on the uniform of a slave, he was expressing an alternate view of greatness just in his clothing. It wasn't just, I need to take this garment off because I'm gonna get it wet. Jesus was communicating something entirely different and far more profound. In our text, it tells us that Jesus knew several things. Four, at least, number one, he knew that his time had come. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. 
He knew that God had given him all authority and he knew that he had come from God and then he was headed back to his father. And it's in this incredible tension of knowledge that we find Jesus presenting one of the most powerful principles in the Christian life that has transformed cultures, the world over. Imagine this, friends, that he, he knew the time and location and even the nature of his own death. And he knew that he was going to be betrayed by someone that he chose and someone he loved. And all at once, he also knew he was settled in his identity in God and that God had given him all authority. In fact, authority over these jokers who were going to take his life. One of those extremes could lead us to despair, couldn't it? And the other extreme could lead us to rest in our status, to maybe our platform and our soapbox. I don't need to put up with these guys. I have authority over these people who want to take my life. I want to suggest a few things to us. Cove Church, regarding Jesus' actions here, number one, the higher our status, the more profound the services we're called to. Think of this dichotomy, divinity, Jesus, pure divinity on its knees. The world is full of people standing on their dignity when they should be kneeling before others. Number two, the more secure we are in our authority in Christ. Remember, he said all authority had been given to him. The more sacrificial our leadership becomes. Number three, the closer we move toward God, Jesus knew his time had come. The closer we move toward God, the closer we move toward broken humanity. He was all at once moving toward his father and kneeling before his disciples. Number four, when our leadership is cruciform, when our lives are in the shape of a cross, we have the grace to finish well. Jesus finished well. How many Christian leaders, how many Christians do we know who don't finish well in life? The cross, a symbol of a slave, the ultimate act of service. And if it's not, friends, listen, if, if it's in the shape of Jesus's Roman culture, or our modern day Roman culture, or the airline that Joy and I flew a few weeks ago, then the thought of sacrifice, the thought of a lowly status and servanthood will always seem foolish to us. We're gonna wear out and serving will become a burden It'll become obligatory, something that we do simply because our pastor says that we should and we'll get crusty and we'll secretly complain, if not outwardly complain that we do so much and no one cares and no one sees. Others don't recognize it. We'll hold out maybe for certain platforms where we can really put our talent on display. We'll begin to elbow people out as we move up the food chain. On October 18, 1994, what's become known as the Memphis Miracle took place. The background is this. Modern-day Pentecostalism really grew out of a couple of movements in, in Europe. It grew out of the Welsh revivals started by a guy named Evan Roberts. And then here in the States in Southern California, the Azusa Street revivals started by William J. Seymour. And for a while, there was wonderful race, racial unity amongst uh, Pentecostal groups, but it only lasted, unfortunately, for a while. And by 1948, the Pentecostal Fellowship of North America was formed and most of the founding members, if not all of them, were white. 
It took about 46 years, but the PFNA recognized the need to heal the racial divide and to seek forgiveness through repentance. And they decided to call an assembly on October 18th, 1994 for all of the Pentecostal movements, both black and white, who were willing to attend. And on the 18th, they dissolved, praise God, the PFNA. And the next day, they started the Pentecostal and charismatic churches of North, North America, including both black and white founding members. Pastor Brandon, why are you to bring this up? Because the turning point was on the 18th when an unknown white pastor from an Assemblies of God church who wasn't even supposed to be there sensed the Spirit of God speaking and moving on his heart to wash the feet of a bishop named Bishop Clemens, a black pastor. And so he approached, he was sitting in the crowd and he, he approached the stage and he knelt next to kind of his overseer, his leader. He explained what the Holy Spirit was doing in his heart and he was good with whatever authority or whatever direction he was given. Well, his pastor, as the story goes, sensed the Holy Spirit speak to his heart as well and he released him to do it and they found a bowl of water and Don Evans knelt in front of Bishop Clemens and he washed his feet and he began to weep and he repented and he begged him for forgiveness. And those who were there heard weeping begin to sweep over the entire crowd. And those who were there said that that was the turning point in the entire process, in the entire assembly. What's the rest of the story with Jesus? We left Jesus in a similar place on his knees before the disciples with the servant's attire on and he was going to the cross and he knew it. Well, friends, it took over three centuries. But this man whose death was little more than a footnote the day he died began to work like leaven through his culture. And even as Christians were martyred and set on fire and fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum, a place reserved for sport and status and the blood of martyrs and, and emperors with their thumbs up and, or their thumbs down, essentially playing God over life and death, now has a different symbol in the place where the emperors used to sit. Friends, the cross was not just an event in history and it wasn't just something that Jesus did. It is who he is. He's a servant. And friends, between the idea of orthodoxy, our belief system, and orthopraxy, what we do, there, there's, some, there, there's something missing. See, see we, we can have wonderful, beautiful orthodoxy, what we believe. And then we can even go and live it out. But if we just kind of wrap doing around a cold, hard heart like the Pharisees will become one. See, the Pharisees had near perfect orthodoxy and even their actions were praised. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, he said, man, you do all of these things, but your way of being, your ontological nature is rotten. See, the cross wasn't just an event 2000 years ago. The cross isn't just something that Jesus did. It's who he is. The highly influential Quaker minister, Parker Palmer, said this, the way of the cross is the way of absorbing pain and not passing it on. 
And friends, I think this week, this month, there's one question that we could ask the world around us, our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, maybe even our enemy, that would change the, the, the fabric, that has the power to turn our entire culture on its ear, and it's this, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Where we take off our status symbol and we put on the towel of a servant. Friends, what could you do with your place of authority, with your education, with your affluence, with your influence? Who could you ask this one question to this week? And are you prepared for the answer? Or what would happen, Cove Church, if you already knew the answer to the question, you simply went and served someone anyway? Because the higher our status, the more profound service we're called to. Because the more secure we are in our authority in Christ, the more sacrificial our leadership becomes. And because the closer we move toward God, the closer we move toward broken humanity. And because when our lives are in the shape of a cross, when we live cruciform lives, we have the grace to finish well. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this call to a cruciform life. The cross is not just something that you did. It's not just an event 2,000 years ago. It is who you are, the suffering servant. And the cross is just as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, growing, it seems, in its ability to change lives and reach people. Lord, we're called to a cruciform life. The way of the cross is the way of absorbing pain in our society, in our culture, without passing it on. And we can only do this through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the grace and courage that you give us. Would you help us? In the name of Jesus, and I sense Cove Church uh, to pray for those who maybe you're tuning in and you would say, you know, I've never, I've never crossed the line of faith. Brandon, I'm, I'm one of those individuals you talked about early on, you, you referenced, I, you know, I've been trying to figure Jesus out, but I, but I sense the time is now to cross the line of faith. I don't understand everything. Hopefully I don't need to. You're exactly right, you don't but I wanna offer you that opportunity now. And if that's you, I wanna pray with you and maybe just lead you in a prayer that you could repeat after me wherever you're at in your car, maybe on your phone, maybe at home, sitting on the couch, maybe just so you could hear the sound of your own voice. And if you would, I think down in the lower, you know, right-hand portion of your screen, there's a little, um, you know, I, I raised my hand uh, to accept Jesus. Would you click that? So we just know who you are and, and so we can be praying for you. Let's pray together. Why don't you repeat this after me? Jesus, I need you. Today, I confess you as my Lord. Thank you for serving me. Thank you for your death on the cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you that it's not just something that you did, but it's who you are. 
And Lord, I want to follow in your footsteps. Would you forgive me of my sin? I repent of all the ways I've missed the mark. Would you fill me with your spirit? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Cove Church, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, be on the lookout for some baptism signups. I would encourage you to be baptized at uh, your next opportunity. Bless you, Cove Church. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.